Events, the podcast of fly fishing travel. With helpful travel tips, news and events, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from seasoned and experienced traveling anglers, this is your backstage pass to the world of fishing travel. Waypoints is fueled by adventure and brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing, a hands-on specialty travel and booking company that delivers the industry's very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered. And now your host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. So I'm joined today by Camille Egdorf, a name that many of you know and one that seems to be everywhere these days in the world of fly fishing. Camille, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are literally everywhere these days. You're traveling the world for Yellow Dog. You're featured in ad campaigns for Costa and Sims, video profiles from Yeti. You're competing in and winning the adventure games. You have quite a life, Camille. Tell us a little bit about how you would describe your job and, and your profession. Yeah, well, um, I think there's a lot of ways I could probably describe it, but it's definitely adventuresome and unique and uh you know it's it's a lot of fun get to do a lot of really neat travel and and talk and speak with a lot of neat people so it's uh it's really it's really great it's wonderful how would you describe your your job as far as what you do when someone says camille what do you what do you do yeah well um basically i just tell them why i help you and others plan trips to alaska christmas island and and maybe other places too depending on where they want to go but you know, basically, I'm I'm there as a resource to get them on their favorite trip somewhere. There we go. So, how did you personally and professionally find your way to fly fishing? Tell us about kind of growing up. What it was like in the Eggdorf household <laughs> as, a, as a young kid and a young girl growing yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I would guess I could say that I was just kind of born into it. Uh, my my parents have a lodge in Alaska on the Upper Nushigak, and I was six months old when I spent my first summer in Alaska and surrounded by nothing but fishing guides and anglers and, and wilderness and an incredible fishery. So just throughout my upbringing, it was only natural for me to eventually pick up a fly rod. And uh, I kind of just all took off from there and started guiding when I was 18. And um, yeah, I really just kind of always, that's all I've ever really known. You, you never really found your way to fly fishing. You were born into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> well, you, you talked about growing up in that camp on the Nushagak. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen pictures that your mom, Kim, has showed us of you're literally less than a year old. Then mm-hmm. you're on the floor of the cook tent up there. And yeah, I mean, that was your life growing up. Yeah, I think I uh, my crib was a cardboard box. <laughs> At one point, I never seen photos to fly of in. it. Right, yeah, that's right. So, of course, you know, talking about growing up, we got to talk about your parents. I mean, mm-hmm. Kim and Dave <laughs> Eggdorf, both legends. Your dad, uh, we actually did an article about him a couple years ago, and uh, I think we titled it "The Toughest Man Alive." He yeah. is just an absolute creature, your father. And mm-hmm. whether it's you know hunting, trapping, fishing, flying, running a camp, outfitting, I mean, he's the real deal. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's a man's man, that's for sure. And, he, uh, and what a great role model and, and a great father. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I, I I wish I had half the skills, even a quarter of the skills that he does, because he really does have a lot of different things that he does and has been good at and has seen. And anyways, having him as a role model and a father growing up, it's been 
it's been an adventure in itself, really. Well, and and he, uh, you know, everything that he did and, and all that he loves, he made sure that you were exposed to it at a yeah, young age, whether it was, did. you know, hunting bears or flying the float plane. I mean, whatever it was, you did it all as, mm-hmm. as a kid. Yep. Yep. I've probably flown in that float plane more than many people ever will. <laughs> and um, flown across more open land in Alaska than many people probably ever will. And, and I've seen some really neat things. And it's all due to my dad and, and my mom, of course. And a lot of what I've done today and what I have done in the past is is all due to them. So I owe a lot to my, my parents. Well, and, and we always talk about Dave Eggdorf being the toughest man alive. <laughs> that must have scared the hell out of your boyfriends in like high school when you're growing up. He definitely had a reputation as being a scary, scary individual, um, you know, especially his his man cave. Everybody talked about that. And and, um, you know, if you're going to date Camille, you're going to have to go and visit Dave's man cave and all of his guns and see if you ever come out. Well, I always said if, if the world is coming to an end, I'm going over to Dave's house because he might be <laughs> yeah. the last man standing right there. Yep. Well, that's great. What a great upbringing and, and great experiences. Um, and, you know. Growing up, you didn't just work at the camp. You started guiding when you were 18, but you literally grew up there. I mean, your mm-hmm. earliest memories were at that camp. So it's very much in your blood and, yep. and kind of a part of who you are and who you've become. Yep. Yeah. My first rainbow trout on a fly rod was caught right on the banks of the camp when I was six, seven years old and uh, lived the part of being in a lodge from the very beginning, all the way from being six months old, all the way up to being where I am now. And I saw everything from not just the fishing and the guiding aspect of it, but also just working with clients and, and managing the camp and doing the camp chores and doing the Costco runs and going to town, doing changeover and flight logistics. So, you know, I definitely had a very, very upfront row seat to lodge life in Alaska. Well, and, and it taught you about customer service and how yes. to take care of people, which suits you well today in, in your, your present role as the Alaska program director for Yellow Dog. Yes. And uh, every year, you literally send hundreds of anglers a year up north to to fish the the legendary land of the midnight sun. Uh, if someone's looking to plan an Alaskan adventure and, and fish Alaska for the first time, Camille, where do they start? How do how do things get going? Yeah, well, a lot of times people make the mistake of going to Google and typing in Alaska fish, fishing lodge, and they come up with this. 500 answers yeah, and options. exactly, exactly. And it's just a daunting thing to see, and they don't know where to start, which I don't blame them. I wouldn't know either. Especially nowadays where everybody's got a flashy website that shows big fish and yeah. promises the world, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm number one fishing lodge in the world or, right. you know, best fishing lodge in Alaska for rainbow trout. I mean, it, you hear it all. But but there's a huge difference of, the, of the all the operations outfitters lodges up there i mean you've got kind of the whole spectrum so yeah. wh- where do you begin yeah well you know it, it's going to kind of the answer to that is going to be specific to the individual most times and it largely has to do with okay well what do you want to do first and foremost what kind of angler are you and overall length of stay that you want uh, what kind of lodge experience you want so there's kind of a, a number of different scenarios that come into finding that answer and so i think the first thing is establishing or figuring out what it is you want to accomplish. What type of trip, Exactly, yep. And then, you know, you've got different options. You've got like the do-it-yourself trips. You've got, you know, the structured lodge packages where Mm -hmm. you show up and everything's included. Yeah. Then you've got more of kind of the 
slightly off the grid or, or, or fringe trips that might be, you know, a multi-day river and camping trip in the wilderness mm-hmm. of Bristol Bay or, or, you know, a number of different outdoor kind of uh, backcountry experiences. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So really kind of trying to figure out what type of trip is going to be the best fit. And that's really where you come in, trying right. to match people up with that. Yep, exactly. And, you know, when you're when you're trying to decide or when you're talking with somebody that's trying to figure out what they want to do or where they want to go, you know, there's 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 people that like to streamer fish. There's people that like to dry fly fish, have that more classic approach with, you know, a, a mayfly or, you know, a caddis, something along those lines. Or they may want to catch a bunch of fish with, you know, they don't mind fishing a, an indicator and an egg po- egg pattern every once in a while. Um, and then you have, you know, other anglers that maybe want to target that trophy fish of a lifetime. And so depending on what that person's wanting to do in those three categories, then you can start to narrow in on when to go and where to go and who to go with. Well, well, let's talk about one of those aspects right there, the when to go aspect and, and the best season. And, and this is a question I know you get all the time. You know, when is the best time to fish Alaska? When should I plan my trip? Mm-hmm. And and there's no doubt that, you know, as kind of a whole, Alaska's got a very defined summer season. Yeah, you know, That's when the snow is gone and when the, the temps are warmer and when the fish are most active. But talk to me about kind of the overall seasonal breakdown mm-hmm. over the course of an Alaskan summer. You got it. So Alaska season primarily runs from mid-June through sometimes all the way into the first week of October. So you have a pretty good window of time to really narrow down on. And Alaska fish is wonderful all throughout the season, first and foremost. There is not a bad time to go. Um, You know, you hear a lot of people say, well, August is the best time to fish Alaska, and not necessarily the case. It's a great time to be there, but it's not the only time. And um, so kind of breaking down those different seasons, there's three seasons within the season, if that makes sense. You have your early, mid, and late. And your early season is typically that early, or excuse me, mid-June through mid-July time frame. And this is going to be that time frame where if you really want to focus on dry flies, this is going to be a time to do that. You can fish a lot of streamers. You can fish mouse patterns. And largely that has to do with the fact that the salmon haven't shown up yet. And those fish aren't keying in on those eggs yet. So they're looking up. They're looking at chasing smolt. They're looking at chasing sculpins. They're, they're eating at, bugs. Yeah. You know, they're doing trout things. And um, plus, they're hungry after being deprived of food for nine months. They're, they're slightly aggressive. Right. That's yeah. right. Yep. So that's a great time for anybody that just doesn't want to deal with the, the egg game later on and doesn't need to catch that trophy fish, but wants to do something that's more specific like dries, mouse patterns, things of that nature. Okay. So that's the early season from, say, early to mid-June to about mid-July. Yes. Okay. Yep. And then once you start getting into late July, going into... August, I mean, later, probably later August, I would say. Um, this is kind of a time frame that starts to turn into a numbers game where the, the quality is still there, but you're going to start seeing a lot of fish. And that has to do with just those salmon are showing up. The salmon have shown up, and so too has everything else. Yes, exactly. All the dollies, all the small cookie cutter rainbows from lower in the river systems are all following those fish up to the upper river systems. And they're just waiting for that big egg drop. And so if you want to go up there and have, you know, I don't want to put any numbers in anybody's head that it's a guarantee, but you could have days that are 40, 50, 60 plus fish days. And uh, largely that's done on an egg and flesh pattern. 
but you know, it's, it's that time frame where that magic can happen. Well, and that's what all the fish in the ecosystem there are king on. Exactly. Are, are yeah. The, the salmon and the eggs. And that's just the game that time mm-hmm. of year. Yeah. And you know, you talked about the dollies and the cookie cutter rainbows, but the big fish are right in that mix yes, as well. The are. big rainbows, a lot of times they come out of the lakes, they've entered those river systems and they're keyed in just like everything else. Oh yeah. Yep. You might have to be through a couple of 12 inches to get to that 25, 26 incher, but you'll definitely get them. They're there. Yeah. Yep. They're definitely there. And you know, it's interesting because when you talk about a lot of the fisheries in the lower 48, it's very much a hatch game. Yes. And while that can be the case in, in early season, as you were just saying, in a lot of the rivers in Alaska, it's a little different up there. Whereas here we might go from the stoneflies, you know, and the caddis down to the mayflies, the terrestrials. Up there, so much of it revolves around the salmon and the different life cycles of the salmon. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, everything up there from the, the bears to the mammals to the birds to the fish to the flora fauna even in Alaska relies on those salmon. And it's really a, a, an incredible event when all of that takes place. Last year, in 2018, 62 million sockeyes came back to the Bristol Bay watershed. That's a staggering number. It's it's unreal. And that's just sockeyes. That's not including the kings, the chums, the, the pinks, and the silvers. Right. So there's just an astronomical number of fish that go up to those, those river systems When you put that, that number of sockeyes in the river, and if you've never been to Alaska or you've never seen this, the rivers can literally run red. When you're flying over in a float plane and you look down into the river channels, it is a bright red stripe all mm-hmm. the way up. It's just choked full of salmon. Yeah, I mean, you could walk across the water on salmon backs. It's it's amazing. It's, and It's really, really cool. And as you said, everything in that ecosystem depends on and is there because of those salmon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's unbelievable. And there's really no place like it in the world that you can no, see that. No, there isn't. So, you know, you might start off, you know, with the, the life cycle of the salmon. It might go from fish feeding on the fry mm-hmm. to then transitioning and focusing on the egg drop. Yep. And then later in the season, they're eating the salmon as they've died and they're decaying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's big chunks of flesh floating down the river and those rainbows are just chowing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have a constant supply of protein throughout the entire entire season. And going back to the smolt, during that early season, that's when that smolt runout takes place. So previous years, salmon that have hatched usually, you know, usually smolt will spend a year, if not two, in those river systems growing up or growing up to being strong enough to going back out to the ocean. And so during that spring time, just after ice outs taken place, those smolt all migrate back down river to the ocean. And so you'll have these balls, bait balls of smolt that are huge. And you have rainbows. I mean, everything, everything feeds on them. The birds. I mean, it's it's really a lot of, it's almost like you're out fishing in the ocean and you see this big bait ball and there's just stuff coming all over the place, just grabbing it. From from air, Every direction. land, sea, yeah. water, everything. Yeah. It's and nuts. so if you just have a little clouser minnow, an olive and white clouser minnow, or I mean, you could probably have any color. And you swing it out there as these these smolt are going by, or if you see these birds busting bait. I mean, it's it's a fish almost every cast. Yeah. And so it's really a lot of fun. It doesn't take really much at all to have a fish on. I mean, you just put your fly out there and you just let it sit, and you'll have one come up and grab it. it so it, it's unlike anything in the world. No. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really quite incredible. And then, as you mentioned, once the salmon show up, they start to drop their eggs, and then of course that big egg feed takes place. And you'll catch rainbows that are literally so engorged with eggs that they're 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 puking them back up. 
Yeah, as and, you land them and you put yeah. your hand underneath their belly, they're just spitting eggs yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just you really learn really quickly how important that resource is. And, of course, once you get into later in the season, those salmon start to die. And then their bodies are what, in turn, feed the rest of everything else, from feeding the baby smolt that are in the river system still from last year to, you know, the sculpins and, and the bugs that are the entomology in the river systems and, of course, the rainbows, grayling dollies, the bears, the birds, and, and of course, the trees. I mean, you'll, you'll see they've actually done studies of these spruce trees that have proteins left over in them from the salmon. It's really incredible. All, all things are linked to the salmon up they there. They are. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when we talk about Alaska, a lot of times we focus on the big rainbows because as, as fly anglers, that's what people love. Sure. And so um, so much attention gets put on the rainbows. But there's a lot of, of, of anglers that like to go to Alaska and specifically target the salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, so give us a quick rundown on the species that you find up there and kind of what the seasonality is of each particular species. Yeah, you bet. Well, there's five different species of Pacific salmon that come into Alaska's uh, river systems. You have your king you have your chum, and you have your sockeye, silver, and then um, a missing one. There's the uh, the pink. Right. And um, you know, they are they're from from beginning of well, I would say the middle part of June all the way through to the end of the season. There's salmon that are either right at the very opening of these river systems or are at the tail end of their lifespan. And so there's always salmon around. That's and, right. And um, so the kings are the first ones to show up and they're going to generally be that mid June time frame. And there's some places that'll see them a little bit earlier. Southeast will see them maybe in May. Um, you know, and then other places might see them a little bit later in the season. Um, but generally they're the first ones to show up along with the, the chums right behind them. And then you have your sockeyes after that, which are typically going to be mid July, early part of July or mid July. And then after that, you have your pinks right in line with them. And the pinks only run in even years. That's right. Every other year. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's some places in Alaska that'll have some some stray pinks show up uh, in, in odd years too. But uh, for the most part, they're every even. And then after that, the silvers are the last ones to show up in their mid-August. And they'll be there through the rest of the entire season. And while you know they're all important um, mm-hmm. species as far as the ecosystem goes, the two that really get fly fishermen excited would be the kings and the silvers. Yeah, and certainly. those are the ones that people love, love to target on a fly rod. Mm-hmm. And the kings show up early. Yeah. Um, they tend to be huge in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you might be fishing those with a, with a nine or 10 weight even. Right. Yeah. And then of course the silvers are great because of the top water action mm-hmm. and you can get into certain river systems and, you know, cookie cutter, large size, uh, Silvers that mm-hmm. are all well, one looks just like another, but they're all aggressive. They're hitting on top, and you can do that all day long. Oh yeah, yeah. I would say that the silver of all the salmon species are going to be your most aggressive and eager to eat a fly. I've seen them travel twenty feet to come eat a fly before, and and of course, you know, I've seen three or four silvers all at once try to eat a pollywog. <laughs> you know, so they're a lot of fun. They're a big attraction. Um, of they're course, aggressive. They're yeah. acrobatic. They exactly. jump. Exactly. Yeah, it, and they're really cool looking. You know, they got that big type jaw and everything, and they get that really nice deep red when they when they turn. So they're just a really unique fish, and um, and they're good to eat, of course. So if you want to take some fish home, you have that perk as well. Um, the kings are definitely a big draw for folks, mostly just because it's it's the king. You know, it's it's. It's the grand fish of Alaska. It's that that picturesque trophy photo 
of a big giant fish in your hand. And of course they taste great in addition to that. Um, they're a little bit trickier at times, you know, on the fly, you kind of have to dedicate some time to them. A lot of people like to go and swing for them. So you get a lot of your hardcore steelhead anglers from BC and the West coast that really like to, you know, spend some time on, on swinging for, for steelhead. Um, they like to do that as well. Um, but you know, if you don't mind going out and doing a little bit of trolling or something on maybe the lower Nushigak or some other river and, and just have some fish to fill the freezer, it's absolutely a 100% a great fish to do that. And there's always something. That's the new there's part always about something. the Alaska summer season. So let's get back to the big rainbows. Mm-hmm. Now, you could make the argument that early season, they're a little more aggressive and, and uh, you know, they're there. They've just come off of a, a big, hard Alaskan winter. So they're looking to eat and they're mm-hmm. voracious. But when you get later into the summer, that same fish may have gained 30% in body weight. Mm-hmm. I mean, they get fat and heavy. They really do. And they, you know, they, they get healthy. Um, they're just spending every waking moment eating during that limited window that is the Alaskan summer. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about targeting the big trophy rainbows. What are your thoughts on that? And what are your, some of your favorite uh, you know, times of year and favorite places to do so? Certainly. I would say that the, the the prime time for targeting your rainbow trout in Alaska is going to be that late August and then month of September, even early August, or excuse me, October. Um, and that largely just has to do with, in part, you know, those fish, as you mentioned, they've just had nothing but food chucked at them the entire summer season. And so they've put on a lot of weight. And, you know, once you start getting to that later season, those salmon start to go down in numbers a little bit. You know, they, they've died off. The silvers are still around probably, but they're also kind of at the end of their life cycle. And, um, you know, so all those small cookie cutter fish are now migrating back down river. But those big fish are all resident. They don't go anywhere. Where they live is within that one or two mile stretch of river that you found them in early season. They, they never leave. And so a lot of times you're left with maybe not as many numbers, but the fish you do bump into are, are quality. It's good good time to go hunt the, the pigs. Exactly. The time of year. Yep. And and again, it's it's like with any fishery, you probably need to put in some some time into it, dedicate yourself to it, and realize that it's not going to be a, that every single cast or every fish you catch is going to be 28 inches in size. But you're going to have encounters with them very often. And whether you catch them or not, that's kind of up to your up to you. Um, but, but they're there. But they're there. They're definitely there. So we, we've talked about these big rainbows. We've talked about the five different species of Pacific salmon. Um, and, and for a lot of people, they say, well, okay, that's Alaska. You just described it. But that's not quite true. I mean, there are a number of other great species up there that you can mm-hmm. go after with a fly rod. Talk to us a little bit about some of the other opportunities you can find throughout Alaska. Certainly. Well, we've got a great steelhead program in Alaska, and a lot of people don't really associate Alaska with steelhead. And, um, you know, southeast Alaska is probably one of those untapped fisheries that people just don't even think about as far as steelhead is concerned. And that steelhead season is generally going to be April 1st part of May. So it's very short. It's only about five weeks long. But it's much earlier than your traditional yes, trout season uh, in Bristol Bay and other parts of Alaska. Yep. And that's also a reason why people just don't think of it, because it's just outside that window, that classic window. But southeast Alaska, they have an incredible steelhead run. They're all wild, and they're perfect. You don't see a single net scar, hook scar, anything on these fish. They're usually dime bright because they're straight from the ocean. And uh, we work with two great programs. We've got Alaska Charter Service 
the Liveaboard uh, program called the Adventurous, and they travel all the way around, um, you know, Prince William Sound and uh, St. Petersburg, Wrangell, that area, and they just hit these little creeks that are that are glacial fed and mostly rain, you know, fed by rainwater, and um, you go and hike up these creeks. And you're only hiking maybe a mile, maybe maybe two miles, depending on you know your physical abilities, and you're pocket fishing some of these spots where these thirty plus inch steelhead are hanging out, and they're all dying bright from the ocean. Yeah, that that whole Tongass area down in Southeast Alaska is incredible. There's something like three hundred different coastal yeah. streams and rivers mm-hmm. that feed into that area. So the the fishing opportunities are endless. It really is. And, you know, a lot of folks will ask me, what, what are the names of these rivers you go and fish? You like, say, well, we don't talk about that. We, well, we don't talk about <laughs> it. But for one, they don't have names. That's right. You know, they're, they're, they just haven't been put on the map. One of our favorite outfitters up there will, will make names up all the time. Oh, They're yeah. Like, oh, you know, you're at so-and-so creek. And then people come back and fish and say, oh, I fished, you know, so-and-so creek. It's like, no, you didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Well, that's that's a different name that they gave that's us right. this year. That's right. Well, and, you know, so you got the steelhead. I mean, you've got so many other species, you know, the dollies, uh, you know, the... Um, the char, you've got she fish, you've got an incredible pike fishery as yeah, well. Yeah. That's something that people oftentimes overlook when it comes to Alaska. Oh, certainly. So pike, northern pike are found all over Alaska. Um, so, you know, if, if you really wanted to get into a couple of pike, you could do it. Uh, I would say one of the, the best places, if you really are a, a northern pike addict and, and really love that, it's going to be up on the Yukon drainage at a program called Midnight Sun Trophy Pike Adventures. And the Yukon is just home to some some toothy critters and large pike that are hungry and aggressive. And it's not a game where you're fishing a six weight. You're you're fishing nine, if not ten weights. And these fish are huge. And they're huge, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think I can't remember what the biggest biggest fish they had that Scotty mentioned, but I mean, fifty inch fish. Yeah, every year they're getting yeah. fifty, and lots of, in the forties. Yeah. And. Uh, I mean, big numbers and big sizes Mm -hmm. and a totally unique fishery that oftentimes people don't think about when you're having the Alaska conversation. Exactly, exactly. Some of the best pike in the world. Yeah. That's pretty neat. So talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, when you're planning a trip to Alaska, what do you need to think about on the how to get there aspect? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where does an Alaska trip typically start and, and what's involved with the flights and the travel to Alaska? Certainly. Most of the time, people are going to be getting to Anchorage. That's that's the central hub and starting point for basically almost all Alaska programs, um, ex- with the exception of, you know, Southeast. And uh, so you're always going to want to get to Anchorage. That's going to be your starting point. Get there the day, day or two before your trip begins to overnight. That way, you know, there's always weather delays here and there or bags get, get lost in commercial airlines. So it's good to give yourself some cushion time. And plus some time to go explore Anchorage and the surrounding area. Um, But yeah, overnight there. And then the next day is typically when you hop on a charter flight that's going to take you directly to the lodge or to a village that uh, the lodge is going to be picking you up from. Gotcha. So everything kind of starts in Anchorage, begins and ends out of there. And then you may go on to King Salmon or Dillingham or Iliamna, at which point you're meeting your lodge and... There, there you go. Your yep, adventure begins. Exactly. Yep. Right on. So one question we get a lot is from people that are looking for family trips or mm-hmm. couples trips. How conducive is Alaska as a destination for both of those types of scenarios? Oh, it's absolutely conducive. I think that it's a great place for families. You know, I would say that if you had a, a two-year-old, maybe wait a few years. 
But if you have a, a son or a daughter that's seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever, I mean, Alaska is wonderful because, you know, like we were talking about before with August and, and those 50, 60 plus fish days, you know, all those kids got to do is just keep that fly in the water and they're going to have an absolute ball. It's it's definitely yeah. a no no brainer. And the guides up there are so great about working with families and, and instruction and, and making sure the kids are having fun that, I mean, it's it's 100 percent a family a family destination. Well, we, you know, and we get asked all the time, you know, is eight, 10, 12, too young to bring my kid. Um, I've actually hosted a trip up there the last few years. We do it around Father's Day. So we yeah. call it, you know, a father child trip and you bring your son or your daughter. Um, we go and we take over the lodge for a week and it's all dads mm-hmm. and their kids. Mm-hmm. And it's unbelievable. And, and I've had, you know, I think I brought my youngest up there when he was six. Yeah. And as you said, they stand in shallow water they're swinging flies. They're you know, they're just roll casting, and they're not fishing. They're catching, and that's exactly, that's yeah. what makes it so great for kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is you want to turn them on to a lifelong love of fly fishing, get them to Alaska at a young age, and show them how great it can be and how fun it is to actually catch fish. Yeah, because you know we can go anywhere in the lower forty-eight. It's like well, you know, you got to learn patience. Well. Seven or eight or 10-year-old may not want to really focus on the whole patience yeah, part yeah, of good thing. good luck. Good luck. But you go to Alaska, and, and as we said, they're catching. And it's one mm-hmm. of the best places in the world to get your kids started in fishing and, and really help them develop that love for fishing that'll oh, last yeah. forever. Yeah, and it's such a cool experience, too, because especially if you're there during the mid midsummer season, even in July, you know, you can see a ton of wildlife. You can go do some bear viewing if you want to, maybe over at Brooks Falls, which is also an incredible fishery. And it, just the overall experience of being around plains and, and being in Alaska and the wilderness. And, you know, it's just a really neat experience for a young kid that uh, may not have that much experience with it at all. So I think it's it's a wonderful place for kids. Oh, you know, something about climbing into a float plane. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, De Havilland Beaver early in the morning, taking off from the lodge, flying over the wilderness, seeing just how vast things are, and, mm-hmm. then, and then proceeding to have, you know, the greatest day of fishing in your life. Those are oh, yeah. formative experiences oh, for yeah. sure. And, and I know you've got a, a list of great lodges that are ideal for, you know, kids, families, couples, so people can contact you and, mm-hmm. and further discuss that. Um, let's, let's shift gears just a minute uh, and talk a little bit about equipment. And this is another question that you probably get all the time. Okay, I want to go to Alaska, but what do I need? What should mm-hmm. I bring with me? Uh, what's kind of the go-to Alaska setup as far as rods and reels go? Yeah, I would say the standard setup for Alaska is going to be six and seven weights for your trout, dolly vard, and grayling. You can bring a five if you want to do some fun stuff with dry flies. Um, but six and seven weights are kind of the name of the game. And then of course, eight weight for your salmon. And, uh, I find myself personally fishing a seven weight more than anything, just because a seven weight just has the ability to be really versatile and carry bigger flies. It can carry some mouse patterns that might be a little bit less wind, wind aerodynamic, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, uh, also if you happen to bump into a, um, bump into a salmon, on accident, you can handle him as well, you know? So I think a seven weight is great, um, but it just kind of depends on, you know, what personal preference is, but. So if you're putting together kind of your Alaskan quiver, mm-hmm. you might have like a six, seven, and eight. 
That would cover most bases for you? Yes. Okay, perfect. And if you're going after those big trophy pike, maybe it's a nine or nine going or after or kings, maybe mm-hmm. something even bigger. Yeah. So uh, how many of the lodges that you work with up there, Camille, provide equipment versus those that don't have anything? A lot of them, actually. And it's it's of course, it's specific to the lodge. But you know that being said, a lot of times you can go up there and have everything basically taken care of for you. And that includes waders and boots, um, flies, things of that nature. So a lot of times you may not need to bring much at all. You show up with your clothes and uh, you know a pair of sunglasses and they've got everything else you need. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes it pretty easy for sure. Um, you know, another question we get a lot about Alaska is the cost. Mm-hmm. And it's important to realize that, one, it's not going to be as inexpensive as other freshwater destinations and certainly other U.S. destinations you understand that when you get there and realize that almost everything that goes into these remote out camps is flown in. Yeah. So right there, it's going to be more expensive. But talk to us a little bit about the cost and, and what we kind of see across the spectrum on, on what it takes to spend a week fishing Alaska. Yeah, for sure. Well, as you mentioned, um, Alaska is, for the lack of a better way to put it, it's not a cheap place. I mean, a, a gallon of milk up there is over $10. And so, you know, it's, it's good to have that in mind when you're thinking about planning a trip to Alaska, first and foremost, it's, it's going to be an investment. And I would say that you're looking at a price range that can be anywhere from starting at five grand per person for a week, all the way up to, you know, the creme to the creme of 11,000 a week per person. So there's a pretty big range. But, you know, depending on what you're looking for, we can kind of narrow it down to best fit you. We have options for just about everything. You have close to 20 different lodge and outfitting operations that you Mm -hmm. work with in Alaska. So really the whole spectrum. Yes, we do. You've got some that are high value trips, some that are kind of fixed base camps where you may be jet boating or floating each day. Mm -hmm. And then on the far end of the spectrum, you've got your fly out lodges. Yes. And those are going to be more expensive. Mm -hmm. But every day you're stepping into, you know, the de Havilland, the beaver, the otter, whatever it is you're flying out of that lodge. Off you're going to a different area, a different watershed, a Mm -hmm. different river. Uh, What are the benefits of a fly out lodge? Certainly. Well, fly out lodge is what I would consider kind of the the once in a lifetime type trip where, I mean, over the course of six, seven days, you are packing in as much as you possibly can. And that ranges from the fisheries to the amount of country you see, to the amenities, to the guides, to, I mean, the whole thing. And a fly out lodge is really great because, you know, if you have a situation where the home river of the lodge is blown out, you can hop in that aircraft and fly somewhere else. And you don't have to worry about fishing in water you can only see two inches deep in. And so that gives you a lot of flexibility. And also it just gets you to other places that normally you wouldn't ever see. You know, I mean, at one lodge, for example, you can fish six to seven different rivers in the the course of a week. That's right. And um, not only that, you also have the ability to be flexible. And let's say you want to go fish silvers on the coast for a day. You can hop in that plane and go do that. Whereas if you were at a fixed base, you know, you have to wait for the fish to come to you. And so you have a lot of flexibility in your, in your week. And um, there's really no limitations. Of course, the weather might get in your hair a little bit, which in which case you have a great home water fishery right there you can access too. But that being said, the sky's the limit. Well, and, and you know, the fly out deal is a different level, but you know, I heard a lodge owner say years ago, I'll never forget this. He said, uh, well, the reason, you know, we don't own airplanes because they're fun or cheap or easy. 
we own them because it gives our clients the greatest diversity of fishing and it gives us the, the broadest plant. We can fish you in the, the most distant waters, everything you possibly want, and we can go where the fishing is best. And yep. that's really what a flyout lodge delivers. Absolutely. It's not it's not the cheapest option. You're gonna pay for it, but it's gonna deliver a, a completely different Alaskan experience than you might get by focusing, say, on one river mm-hmm. or one particular area, which is fine as well. Mm-hmm. It's just different. Yes. And I think that's important to mention. Mm-hmm. That's right. So one question, Camille, that, that I did want to ask is when someone's preparing for a trip or they're planning a trip, what can they do on the front end to really set themselves up for success once they arrive? What kind of pre-trip preparation tips do you have for people that want to head to Alaska? Yeah, this is after they've already got their trip booked and flights booked, everything. That's right. Yeah, so I would say you're going to want to go through your checklists, make sure that you're going to have all the right equipment, make sure that you know if the lodge isn't going to be providing something, you know, make sure that you know that you're going to have that and need to bring it. Um, you know, as far as flight schedules and everything go, always check things 24 hours in advance. Um, and, you know, if, if you're going to be doing some hiking and everything, probably be a good idea to make sure you're in relatively decent shape and, and can get out and do some hiking because there are places in Alaska where you can you can do a lot of walking. Your, your guides will appreciate that. The guides will absolutely appreciate that. And, you know, I'm always a proponent, even if the lodge is going to provide some flies for you, if they say that's included in the package, I do. I am a proponent of bringing some flies with me just because I, I, I like that personal security of having a box in case for some reason something's not provided. But also then, you know, I don't have to get into the reserves of what the guides have there for their whole season. And so I just, that's kind of a personal thing for me. Um, so I always do recommend maybe bringing a small selection. Um, but ultimately, you know, just uh, make sure you got all your equipment, go through your checklist, check your flight itineraries. Make sure you got your hotels booked early. That's a big one in the The hotels in Anchorage get booked up so fast. And so you want to do that as early as you can. And, um, you know. And and you bring up a good point about doing things early. I mean, especially with some of these more in-demand lodges, Mm -hmm. right? You know, the further out you can book that trip the better your chances of getting the week that you want, getting that prime window. Yeah. Uh, don't don't wait. If you know you want to go to Alaska two summers from now, start looking at it right now and start oh, the yeah. planning process. Yeah, I mean, it's there's no shame in getting started over a year in advance. Absolutely yeah. not. You know, Alaska is a competitive industry, and, and there's a lot of people that want to go see it, and these lodges have big reputations that are good, and they will completely fill up in advance. So it's good to... It's good to get on the game early. That's right. Now, I got to ask you one more question. We're kind of nearing the end here. But one thing that people always ask, if they haven't been to Alaska before, and they're not necessarily comfortable with the full-blown wilderness experience, are the bears. Yeah. There's a lot of bears in Alaska, right? Yeah, and when you are. go out, especially on a lot of the rivers in Bristol Bay, you are going to be in and amongst the bears every day of your trip. Yeah. Yeah, and- you really are. And a lot of people are very nervous about that. That's probably one of the number one things I get when we're talking about bears. It's like, well, I don't, I don't want to have to run into a bear and, and I don't know what to do. Like, what do I do? Do I need to bring bear spray? Do I need to bring my own gun? <laughs> and it's like, no, no, you don't. First off, you can't, can't fly with bear spray. Yeah, please don't bring bear spray don't bring it. and the beaver with you. No, That's right. don't. Um, but, you know, the big thing is, is those those bears are so focused on the salmon and what those fish are doing that they literally probably don't even know you're there. And uh, those guides up there, they know what to do. They know what bear etiquette is. They, they've been trained. They've been around bears a lot. They deal with them every single day. 
And so eventually you just kind of get to this this point where, well, they're just kind of like a dog. You know, they're, they're there and they're doing their thing. You don't interact with it. It's not going to interact with you. And eventually it'll wander off and go chase a pot of salmon somewhere. And it's just, if anything, a really cool photo opportunity. It's an amazing part of that whole Alaskan experience. And you might be you know, on Funnel or Moraine or the American, and you may see 30, 40, 50 bears in a day. Yeah, they're yeah. everywhere. But as you said, they don't, they don't care. They've got tons of food. And there's so many bears around that they're not territorial. So no. they're not typically aggressive at all. And no. it's just part of that overall Alaskan experience. It is. It really is. And it's really neat. And uh, I mean, Brooks Falls, that's a, that's an experience in itself right there. And I always recommend if, if people can get there and, and see it, they really should just because, I mean, at one point in time, you could have 20 bears in your peripheral vision and you're fishing right in amongst them. And uh, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary experience. I think people need to see it at least once. Yeah, it's iconic Alaska right it there. Is, you know, yeah. Float planes, bears, and, and big trout, for yes. sure. It's, <laughs> uh, it's amazing. So, you know, as we wrap things up, Camille, give me three final takeaways, three key pieces of advice for, for planning a successful trip to Alaska. Yeah, I would say the, the three big things, number one being know what you want to do. Figure that out first and foremost. If you're, like we were talking before at the beginning of our conversation, if you're a dry fly fisherman, if you like indicator fishing and want to catch a lot of fish, if you don't care about numbers but want trophy, you know, that's going to help you narrow down when to go. And then, of course, after that, you have your three different lodge experiences, your fly out, fixed base, multiple overnight float trips. Based on that, you can kind of narrow down a lodge. And then after that, everything else kind of falls into place. So that's kind of the first thing. Know what you want to do or figure that out. Um, next thing is establish your budget. So we talked about Alaska is expensive. So if you kind of have a budget for yourself and what you want to shoot for, that's going to really help things out for you. Um, and then I think the most important thing we just talked about, booking early. Because Alaska, it does fill up and it fills up fast. And uh, if you're late to the game, especially for that July, August time frame, even September, you're, you're kind of out of luck. You're going to have very limited options. You're going to have very limited options, yes. That's right. Well, great advice there. And and I have one final question for you, Camille, and I always like to ask this of our guests. Why fly fishing? What What's the draw and the connection for you on a personal level about fly fishing? Hmm. Man, well, it's going, going back to what I said earlier, it's really kind of all I've ever known. And um, I keep going back to it. Not, not to say that I'm against spin fishing, because I would gladly pick up a spinning rod and huck a MEP spinner or a spoon 200 feet. Gladly do that. I think it's a lot of fun. But it's something that is very familiar to me, fly fishing is. And it's soothing, and it's, it's kind of therapeutic. And um, it's just, uh, I don't even know if I have words for it. It's just something I really am passionate about. And I love being able to share it with friends and family and other people and you know, because I know that they, they know what I'm talking about, too. I'm sure you know that feeling I'm talking about because it's it's something you don't really express. You just kind of feel it. Well, great answer. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today and, and uh, for the great information about fishing and planning a trip to Alaska. Uh, that's it for this episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel adventure and exploration. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com to plan and research your next Alaskan trip or a trip anywhere in the world. And be sure to sign up for newsletters and notifications of new podcast episodes delivered right to your inbox. 
Join us for our next episode of Waypoints. And always remember, no matter where you go or where you find yourself, no one ever regretted a life of adventure. This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling. Thank you for joining us and be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more trip updates, travel news, expert advice, and adventure profiles. Thank you.